which is in Christ. He has declared also the position of the believer focusing on the transition of salvation here in chapter 2. And he just keeps expanding it more and more. Chapter 2 again gives us a beautiful picture of man's reconciliation to God. But as we're reconciled to God, we're also reconciled to man. How different we live towards each other and how different we act towards each other uh, than we did prior to being in Christ. Christ made all the difference in the world. Last week, Paul, as uh, we looked at, he declared the old life of a dark, uh, bleak, and hopeless, lost condition of man, being spiritually dead uh, without Christ. In verses 1 through 3, the dreadful state of man was given to us in verse 1. The daily walk of man in sin in verse 2. And the depraved nature of man in verse 3 that's consistent, nothing ever changes. Now, in sharp contrast, Paul declared the um, bright, hopeful condition of a sinner's new life being saved, no longer being dead spiritually, but alive in Christ Jesus. We pointed out last week that verse 1 through 3 is the old life, and 4 through 10 is the new life. 11 through 18 is the old citizenship, and 19 through 22 is the new citizenship. So, we want to look at the work of salvation by God, which is characterized by three truths here in verses 4 through 7. Let me read. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His love which, uh, with which He loved us, e- even when we were dead in trespass and sins, are alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The work of salvation by God is characterized by the following three truths. First, the initiator is God. Verse 4 in the first part of 5. The initiator is God. Secondly, the transactor is God. The middle of 5 down to 6. And then thirdly, the displayer is God. Verse 7. It has all to do with salvation. Notice the initiator is God here in verse 4 in the beginning of verse 5. The Apostle Paul stated that the person responsible for this new life is God, but God who is rich in mercy. These first two words are two of the most important and precious words in the New Testament in this context. The word but can be a contrasting conjunctive or a continuative conjunction. Either it just continues what it's saying or it contrasts it. Some choose to see it as a contrasting conjunction. The mo- most people do. It portrays the vivid darkness known as the lost condition of a person without Jesus being unreconciled to God, which is verse 1 through 3. We saw that dark picture of man. It announces the vivid delight and the safe condition of a person in Christ now being reconciled to God. Um, night and day. Linsky, the Greek scholar, says um, that it's not a contrasting conjunction, and, but he points to the fact that the name or the title for God here is placed in the beginning of the sentence, and in the Greek, that makes it emphatic. 
And that makes a sharp contrast. He says, And you, dead in trespass and sins, God, rich in mercy. And so the contrast is on the stone. So whether you want to take it as a con- uh, contrasting conjunction or just by the emphasis, either way, we see that picture there. Again, the word God is a title indicating deity, supreme divinity, and it refers to the Father. Uh, remember that um, there are three persons to the Godhead. The presence of God at the beginning of the sentence again makes it emphatic. As we pointed out, He's all-knowing, um, omniscient. He's all-present, omnipresent. He's um, omnipotent, all-powerful. He's eternal. Nothing's beyond Him. The understanding is that He can learn nothing. He cannot decrease or increase in any way. He's eternal even as all his attributes. The emphatic contrast is that he alone sovereignly was responsible for initiating our salvation and position in Christ through the gospel. Just as he alone provided the first sacrifice to cover the trespasses and sins of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.21. Adam didn't go looking for God. He went and hid It was God who said, Adam, where are you? He heard God and he hid himself. People always say, well, you know, I've been looking for God all my life. You're a liar. You haven't been looking for God. God looks for us. We look to shape God in our own image. But we're not looking for God. No one forced God to act. He acted on his own on behalf of his own pleasure and glory, as chapter 1, verse 5 and 6 said. The title appears here of God 2,699 times in the Old Testament, 1,183 times in the New Testament. The Bible is about God. (laughs) He's the primary person. And then lost man. The ability of God to save lost man is his attribute of mercy, it says here. Who is rich in mercy. The qualification of the attribute of mercy is said to be rich. And if you were with us when we went through the teachings of theology, went all through the attributes, we, we took our time upon all the attributes of God. They're incredible. The word rich means wealthy, abundant inexhaustive in supply, if you will. Again, remember, not only is God eternal and immutable, He can increase and decrease, but also all His attributes are. So if you go down the Pacific Ocean, you take a bucket, five-gallon bucket down there, and you take some salt water out, you just decrease the Pacific Ocean by five gallons. You take all the sins of the world, all the people who ever call on His name, and, and all the sins He's been given, and you haven't even affected grace. None at all. In fact, the word appears several times in chapter 1, 7, 19, and 3, 20. You remember in Exodus, when uh, Moses was there on the mountain, it says, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh Elohim, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. 
And he says this throughout the Old Testament as he is longing to be gracious and long-suffering towards sinful man that they might turn from sin. Um, no one will ever be able to accuse God of being impatient with a person or stopping short of giving him every opportunity. The attribute of mercy is the word ilios, and it means compassion and pity, referring to the repentant sinner, not a believer. It's to the repentant sinner that's calling on the Lord so that he can become a believer. The source of mercy is the love of God, as we will see as he goes on. The word mercy, again, means kindness or goodwill towards one who is miserable and afflicted, joined with a desire to help them by acting upon it. When you walk down the street, you may see a person, perhaps, that has fallen down or something, and it's, he's elderly or she's elderly, and you walk up on them. You don't just say, hey, get up! Because of their condition and their age, you stoop down with tenderness. And by even the tone of your voice, compassion exudes. Are you okay? This is God. This is mercy. So many people have a picture of God like he's a policeman ready to bash you on the head or something. He's a broken father. Broken hearted father looking for his lost children. The mercy of God is less than we deserve. You have grace, mercy, and peace, the triplets of the New Testament. Grace is the source of everything. Peace is the result of grace. And as a Christian, you need a lot of mercy. <laughs> less than you deserve. The Bible says the mercies of God are tender, great, sure, new every morning, abundant, and many other things about it. Notice the Apostle Paul then stated the motivation of God for salvation, it was his love for sinners. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in trespasses. Amazing love. The reason is expressed by the word because. Dia. It means in order to satisfy his love. It's not like our word in English because. Because is not a reason. The, English, the Greek word here gives you a reason. Okay. In order to satisfy his love. Mercy is the expression of God's love. Mercy, mercy is the extension of his love imparted to sinners. The measure of God's love, notice for lost man, is described as great with which he loved us. This love is not like human love um, that is selfish and self-centered. Man does have a capacity for doing good and being selfish at times, but the, the habit of life, the bent is towards selfishness or evil. But because the image of God has not been marred completely, we do have a potential, and sometimes we do soar, and we do come through. 
even without being born again. There are many people who are very kind, very loving, and they do so much for other people, even at their own expense and their own detriment, and they're not Christians. So the image of God is still within man. But the problem is that our bent is towards evil and towards selfishness. God's love is not motivated by feelings, emotions, or sexual benefit as ours are. His love described here the very divine nature of God. The scriptures tell us that God is love in 1 John. God is love, God is light, God is spirit, God is truth. That's his very nature on those four things. Therefore, being his very nature, it is uncaused and undeserved. Again, he initiates. It's his very nature. The word is agape, as you know. God's perfect love that is selfless and thinks of others that cannot help themselves. There are two things involved in the expression of God's love. The first being his inner content and satisfaction to impart it. Secondly, the benefit of his love to the wretched, miserable sinner to be saved. He just takes pleasure in imparting his love and that a sinner be benefited by it. Amazing. It's best defined for us in the invitation in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The whosoever is anyone in every age, every nation, wherever the gospel goes, wherever an invitation is made, men and women have made decisions that have affected and sealed their eternity. And will continue to do so until the Lord returns. Remember the first division of this epistle in our introduction. When I gave you a simple outline. It's chapter 1, 2, and 3. It's the wealth of the believer by the love of God. The second division is the walk of the believer in the love of God. And the third division is a war for the believer through the love of God. By the love of God, in the love of God, through the love of God. The three divisions. The focus of the entire epistle of Ephesians is God's amazing love. That's the motivation. That's the incentive by which God extended salvation to lost sinners. Notice the time when God imparted his rich mercy to satisfy his great love. And it's just not love, but great. It's enormous. It's just huge. And it's for us, even when we were dead in trespasses. When somebody does something for someone and It just takes a lot of expense, a lot of time, a lot of trouble. And if that person 
is a person who is a giver and very kind. Then you say, man, that's good that they did them. Because you, you realize, you know, you, 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 in your mind and our hearts, we say, well, they deserve it. If anyone deserves it, they deserve it. But the fact of the matter that when you examine God's love and you look at what the scriptures say and you look at the condition of you and I and sinful man, we can never say, yeah, we deserved it. Even when we were dead in trespasses. The statement is a reiteration of verse 1. The wretched and miserable spiritual condition of lost man magnifies the greatness of God's love and compassionate mercy. Loving kindness, the Old Testament word, hesed, the covenant word. Steadfast love, loving kindness. There was no real benefit to God apart from his contentment and pleasure to express and impart his great mercy out of his great love for sinners. A sinner who was utterly helpless to help himself. So God did for us what we can never do for ourselves. He saved us. It's much like a drowning man that is out there in the ocean and lifeguard goes out there and saves him. It was the action taken by the lifeguard that saved the man drowning. Nothing less. Now this doesn't take away from our need to respond in salvation. We've gone through all that against Calvinism in chapter 1. So we're not going to go over it again. God doesn't save you against your will. You must respond. He initiates, you respond. Two men on the cross, they both responded. One accepted, the other one rejected. One believed, the other one did not believe. It wasn't that Jesus Christ predestined one to be saved and predestined the other one damnation. That's not biblical. <laughs> That would make God unjust. Because both of them equally deserve hell. So never exclude the response of your life to Christ. Now the lost condition of man is clear throughout the Bible. Contrary to the belief that man is good. Let me give you some verses. Um, Romans 5, 6 says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. I presume we all qualify. <laughs> Romans 5.10 For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Colossians 1.21 and 22 And you who were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now... He has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Titus 3, 4, and 5. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, towards man appeared, not of works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration 
and renewing of the Holy Ghost. The love of God is equally clear throughout the Bible as the motive for salvation. In fact, 1 John 3, 1 tells us, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. So, rather than being children of wrath, as we saw last week, now we're children of God. There's only two families. You belong to the family of God or the family of Satan. 1 John is very clear. There's no third family. It's one or the other. First John 4, 9 says, In this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. First John 4, 10, In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Confirming what he says in 1 John 2, 2. The propitiation is that sacrifice that satisfies the demands of God for justice and satisfaction for the sin of Adam. There was a real payment made. There was a real debt paid. First John four sixteen says, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. All those words for love is agape love. Agapao, different forms of it, but it's still the same divine love. That makes the difference in your life and mine. And that love comes from your love relationship with God. We can't give what we don't have. The vertical is always the most important. That's what takes care of the horizontal. That's what allows us to deny ourselves, to crucify our flesh, to, to suffer if need be, so that we don't become carnal or act carnal or live out carnal. The mercy of God is available to the believer constantly. Mercy is an expression of God's love that cannot be imparted to the, or can be imparted to the, to the believer also, but it doesn't mean that grace is imparted to them. That mercy is imparted, but it's temporary, even though, a believer, even though a person is not a believer. Listen to Psalm 145.9. The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works, as believer and non-believer. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5.45. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So God is merciful to the unbeliever. But that doesn't mean He's imparted grace. Grace is for salvation. Mercy is dispensed by God even to the unbeliever, but it doesn't mean they're saved. The mercy imparted to a repentant sinner is an expression of God's love dispensed um, apart from grace. To the believer is dispensed along with grace. These mercies are unsearchable because they flow from God's grace. Listen to 
Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. He says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. Now that we've been saved by grace, and you'll touch this in a parenthetical uh, expression, a commentary, and then later on, verse 8 and 9. Um, now that we've come through grace, then now we have the mercies of God continually for our life and even into eternity because they come under the auspices of grace. There are as children of God. Second Corinthians 1, 3 through 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulations, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. And so because you and I experience the mercies of God and the comfort of God, we are able to comfort others. So the mercy that God imparts to us, we even use that to be able to be merciful and comfort others. Because we are to be like Jesus Christ. So the initiator of salvation... It's God. So next time somebody tells you that they, they've been looking for God, straighten them out. <laughs> no one's ever been looking for God. Notice secondly, the transactor is God also. The second part of 5 down to 6, the Apostle Paul described that God regenerated the believer made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. The one acting again is God the Father, the third person of the Godhead. The second person of the Godhead is Jesus Christ, and it's very clearly distinguished as you go through this epistle for different times. The one being made spiritually alive is the sinner, the one who was dead in trespass and sins, and the phrase made us alive means to come to life or make alive. I like the old King James. It says quickened. It means regenerated. God jump started us. You have a dead battery, you jump started. The Greek construction here is called paraphrastic construction when a writer cannot get all details of action in one verb form so he uses two like he does here and the tense is the indicative error is active in other words God has done it there will be two more in verse 6 but though Paul describes them as three separate things, all three happen at the same time in salvation as we move through those other two. Notice the connection for our spiritual life, again, is with Christ. No other. There is a great push in our society, our world, and our nation, our educational institutions, even our legislation, to make everybody ecumenical. One, don't make a difference. Don't argue about religion, right? Don't make a difference about doctrine. Let's just all get along. You've seen that very stupid coexisting bumper sticker. 
it's like going to grab some lunch, you throw some pizza and some watermelon and a little bit of Hershey's and add all kinds, and then mix it all up. All right, drink it. There's no coexistence. None at all. The only way you can be right with God and with man is Jesus Christ. God is very specific. He has never changed His orders. He hasn't recalled my Bible. It always remains the same. Jesus was physically dead, then made alive. The sinner was spiritually dead, then made alive. The vital connection of cause and effect is of the utmost importance with Jesus. Not Buddha, not Allah, not Krishna, not Mary, not good works, not because you give a lot of money, Christ Jesus. This is the new birth Jesus told Nicodemus. You must be born again or you'll never enter the kingdom of God. In John 3, 3 through 5. Now notice the commentary explains the entire process of salvation by grace alone. The words in brackets were inserted by the translators to give uh, the clear understanding of the connection of Paul's previous prayer. They were to know the power of God by the resurrection of Jesus in order that they grasp the same power has raised them up in their spiritual dead state. There's a connection. The perfect tense in the passive, the completed past action here with present results in the present time giving a durative force to the finished results we've been justified sanctified he says we'll be glorified God did this alone not us and so we've been saved by grace and he will pick that up in verse 8 and 9 more specific when we get there. So grace is the overall source. Love is the motivation. The mercy is the extension of God's love, another facet of God's love. But notice the Apostle Paul described that God vivified the believer. He raised us up together. The one acting is still God the Father. The Father is the transactor, as we said. The Son is the medium of the transaction. The believer was made alive spiritually. Vivify comes from the word vivir, to live in Spanish. It's a Latin. And before we were dead. Now we're alive. The word, or the phrase actually, raised together, is a compound word, as we noted before on the other one. Again, in the indicative era, is active here. 
The first word is son in the Greek. It means with. And the second is means to rise up and to cause to appear. The same thing that the Father did to Jesus, He does to those who believe in Jesus if they repent. He raises us up, makes us alive with Christ. Together with Him. The word us is in italics, notice, indicating it's not present in the Greek manuscript. But it's inserted again just to give you the sense in the English. The contrast is the old and new life. The dead old life of sin in um, chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. And the um, resurrected new life of godliness in chapter 2, verse 4 through 10. The breath of life was breathed and our spirit became alive. Even as God breathed into the nostrils of man the breath of life, Adam, and he made him a living soul. Notice the Apostle Paul described that God exalted the believer and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The one acting again is the third person of Godhead. God the Father. He's the initiator, the transactor. The Son is the channel, the medium again of the transaction. The believer has been seated in the heavenly places, Paul says. Now we've seen this before. The phrase refers to the spatial realm of the unseen world of spiritual reality. Uh, here in this room, I've told you often, there's good angels and bad angels. There's two worlds going on here. We can't see the one, but it's as real as you and I. The phrase heavenly is in the plural, literally heavenlies, and means the sphere or dimension supreme over all the earth below, in which the spiritual world is active and present. The word places again in italics indicates it's not there but inserted so you can make sense of the sentence. So the believer sits in the position of privileged authority to draw from and live out the wealth of Christ in his or her life. We sit in the heavenlies right now with Christ Jesus by faith. It's as real as when we'll sit there glorified. It's just that I'm here right now and then I'll be there. But in the eye and the mind of God, it's already taken place. Satan, contrary to this, the prince of the power of the air of lower regions and the atmosphere deceiving sinners and opposing saints, as we saw last week in Ephesians 2.2, 2, and also in 6.12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but principality, power, dominions of darkness in high places. So there's the spiritual dimension of warfare that you and I are born into the minute we are born again. There is no believer who has not born into warfare. Everybody's born into warfare. So you must learn how to fight good warfare with the armor, with the mind of God, with the word of God, the filling with the spirit, prayer, all the weapons that God has given to us. Now the phrase appears five times only in this epistle 
and no other. The first, um, as we have already indicated, uh, indicated the dom- domain and the rule of God to impart to believers all that is necessary for the process of salvation in chapter 1, verse 3. We're all blessed with spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus, every spiritual blessing. The second was in chapter 1, verse 20. It refers to the exceeding great power for the benefit of the believer due to the fact that Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand in the heavenlies. The third time is in chapter 2, verse 6 here. Again, it refers to the believer being seated in the heavenly with Christ by His grace alone. And the fourth time, it refers to the church giving witness to the angels in the heavenlies about the manifold wisdom of God in chapter 3, verse 10. As the angels are looking into the things that God is doing in and through the church. The fifth and last that refers to the spiritual warfare that is constantly going on, as I mentioned before, chapter 6, verse 12. Uh, the spirit world, principalities, powers, dominions of darkness. Once again, notice the phrase in Christ Jesus. It identifies our connected position, being born again. Those who believe the gospel that Jesus died and rose from the dead for their sins, making atonement for them and repenting, therefore becoming new creatures, children of God. By grace through faith, as we'll see. Those who formerly in Adam were dead in trespasses and sins, separated from God, are now in union with Christ, in Christ, regenerated by the last Adam. So you either stand in the first Adam or the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. The last Adam is spiritually dead, all his relatives. The last Adam is Jesus Christ. And notice the last Adam, not the second Adam. Now, he's the second man, but the last Adam. <laughs> There's a difference. 100% God, 100% man. But he came to undo what Adam failed to do. To demonstrate that Adam didn't have to fail, but he chose to fail. Therefore, he is the culprit for the fall of the human race. The phrase in Christ Jesus is key to the epistle. It appears six times here in this letter. Uh, 1, 1, 1, 2, 7, 10, 13, and then three eleven. The phrase in Christ alone appears five times. And there are 16 references to Jesus by name, title, Pronouns and various combinations of the first in the first 15 verses, let alone over 30 in the entire letter. It's in Christ, it's in Jesus, it's in Jesus Christ, it's in Christ Jesus. Every combination in, by, through, with, it's all tied with Jesus Christ. In fact, the the preposition there, um, in, appears 116 to 120 times in the letter. It's only six chapters. (laughs) So the wealth of the believer is in fact the riches of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 7, verse 18, 3, 8, 
16, 519, and others. Listen then, 1, 3. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And that's in the heavenlies. Ephesians 1, 6. We are accepted in the beloved. Ephesians 1, 7. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. 118, knowing the riches of his glory in the saints. 121, 22, we understand Jesus has the highest authority, no one above him. He's in full control. And here again in verse 5 and 6, if we looked at we have been made alive, raised, and seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That's our wealth. As you know, the Old Testament high priest entered the Holy of Holies once a year. A model of heaven, the whole tabernacle. But as he walked into the Holy of Holies, that was a model of the sphere of heaven, of the heavenlies. Stones upon his chest over his heart, 12 of them. Stones upon his shoulder, six on each one. Bearing the burden of Israel, the people of God. Bearing the, 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 the burden over his heart to care for the people of God. And he would enter in, but it was only a model. You and I, we can enter boldly before the throne of grace any time we want. Of the day and night, Hebrews 4.16 says. We have access to Jesus Christ anytime. Each of us were witnesses of the miraculous transaction God did by taking us from being spiritually dead to making us spiritually alive. I've pointed this out often, and it can't be said enough. As you look to Peter, James, and John, they were witnesses to that very same miracle in their life. The Samaritan woman experienced the same. The woman who came in to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, she experienced it. And countless of millions and billions have Throughout the ages. The same experience. But it has to be experienced personally. No one can experience it for you. Peter was preaching the gospel. The house of Cornelius. As you know. And as he was preaching. They were born again. As he was preaching. As they were listening and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit and they spoke with tongues and magnified God. It says, For they heard them speak with tongues and magnified God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we, the Jews, have? <laughs> he didn't even get through preaching. They were born again. Each of us, born again, have been made alive. And we sit in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. What a privilege. 
were to do so and take advantage to seek his will. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. But also to no longer live for sin. Romans 6, 4 through 6 says, Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So, to those that much is given, much more is required. When your child grows and he obtains new abilities, you require more of them. You expect more from them. You, they have to be more responsible, more accountable. And the same with us. But also to live by and through the divine nature imparted to us. This is how it's done. In Second Peter chapter 1, 3 through 4, it says, As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Every person who repents, their sins are forgiven, they are made alive, quickened in Christ Jesus, regenerated. They are given a new nature. And they have the ability to live the life of Christ to the glory of God. It's whether we are willing to obey or not. It's not because we don't have the potential or the ability the transactor in salvation is God. Notice thirdly, here's the displayer. Is God also, verse 7. The Apostle Paul declared the purpose behind salvation of sinners, that it goes beyond the church age. That in the ages to come, he might show. The incredible work of God during the church age is certainly Revealing the exceeding riches of his glory to the world here and now. Not only to the world, but also to angels as they look in, as we said in chapter 3, verse 10. The word reveal there means simply to point out or to demonstrate or to display. This God had done and has done by the many nations that have heard and responded to the gospel throughout the last 2,000 years. And even before that, those of Israel and proselyted in. The depth of the sinful depravity of God has turned people from um, sinfulness to godliness. This has evident of the world. That world sees people who are so messed up and all of a sudden their life has changed. It's on display even now. 
the multitudes of ruined lives that were renewed in living hope every generation the world looks. The undeniable impartation of forgiveness by those who were saved to those who persecuted them or even killed some of their family has been an amazement to the world when people do that. The focus of the text, notice, is the ages to come. The word that, it's the word henna, it's called a henna clause because it presents the purpose. It's a purpose clause explaining the reason behind what proceeds. Ages refers to the future periods indicating by God's word. We know we're in the church age and what is to come is the millennial kingdom. The age where Jesus will rule and we will reign with him. And then after that you have the eternal age of eternity where we, the bride of Christ, will spend all eternity with him. And God will display his church both in the millennial as well as the eternal aspect for all eternity. What he's done in and through us when we're all glorified, when we are there as his bride. The Apostle Paul declared the purpose behind the salvation of sinners goes beyond the church age then. Notice he says the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So, God in his mind from all eternity, he knows the end from the beginning. Angels, you and I, we're just seeing it day by day, hour by hour. To God is like watching a movie all over again, a rerun. For you and I, it's the first time we've seen it. The phrase exceeding riches means to throw beyond, to surpass, indicating the abundance of the grace. Grace cares his unmerited favor, undeserved, again, the source of salvation that he'll deal with in verse 8 and 9. That which provides salvation for sinners and that which provides redemption for sinners as well and reconciliation of sinners with God first and then with man. Ephesians 2.21 says, To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. You see, the purpose is, notice, to display the kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Kindness refers to his moral goodness, that of God. His integrity, if you will. The reference to us is in the plural pronoun. Jew and Gentile. One in Christ Jesus is moving towards that. On display, Jew, they used to hate Gentile, and Gentile used to hate Jew. One in Christ Jesus. Husbands and wives that were ready to just divorce or kill each other. And one in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters that had great drifts, one in Christ Jesus. The splendor of his bride. The implication being that God saved both without violating his holiness and justice, Jew and Gentile. 
His son died for the sins of the entire world, whether Jew or Gentile. His son made them one in Christ. To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved Ephesians 1 success. The Judaizers wanted to split the church. The Judaizers wanted to make Christianity an extension of Judaism. Paul and the elders said, no way. And they went up to Jerusalem in Acts 15. Because they were teaching that you must be circumcised to be saved. Paul says, not on your life. This is not Judaism. This is Christianity. The scene in heaven says it all. In Revelation 5.13 says, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. <laughs> He's going to display us. He loves his church. We're studying the seven churches. He stands in the midst of his churches, looking, examining, directing. Now, who are going to be the spectators that God is going to show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness to? Well, who else is in heaven and eternity? Angels. Not people from Mars. Not E.T. Angels. The archangel Gabriel. Michael. The seraphims, the cherubims, the regular angels. There's just 100 million and more. Listen to Daniel as he saw them. Daniel 7.10. Daniel saw a myriad of angels here. He says, And a thousand thousand ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. And the books were open. Whoa. Like the sands of the sea. Unable to count. The incredible oneness. Of the bride of Christ. Despite all differences. Will bring praise and glory to him alone. All our differences. Do not divide us. What unites us is. Jesus Christ and his word. We may differ in a lot of things. But that doesn't get in our way of oneness in Christ Jesus. Everything gets run through the word of God. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition, separation, Jew and Gentile, and on the temple area. That is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two. Thus making peace in that he might reconcile them both to God in one body 
through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Ephesians 2, 13-16. The middle wall partition, Jew and Gentile. On that wall, beyond the Gentile, of course, as any Gentile beyond this point, he'll be put to death. <laughs> that wall's been broken down. Jew and Gentile one. Wow. The displayer of salvation is God. And rightly so. Because he's the one who has picked his bride. He's the one who's done everything. And so this is the work of salvation by God. Characterized by these three truths. The initiator of salvation is God. The transactor of salvation is God. And the displayer of salvation is God. No one else. Incredible. Ephesians is just so rich. And if God wouldn't have revealed all of this, we wouldn't know anything. (laughs) Nothing for certain. We'd have to be guessed and we'd be wrong. Because we could have never imagined any of this. Father, thank you for your grace and love. Speak to our hearts as we look to you, Lord, and we thank you for tonight, for your word. And Father, we pray you continue to deal with our hearts as you add to the church, as you guide us, as you direct us, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you believe Jesus is God who became man, and did exactly that for you, then you can call upon him and he says he will save you. You're saved by grace through faith, and not of yourself, it's a gift of God. We'll look at that next time. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. But if you want to be born again, maybe you're over the internet or here in the balcony floor, then this is your prayer of repentance if you want to be born again. He will forgive you and he will make you his child right where you sit. You can repeat after me. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.